Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. And Stefan, we have Adams back. Hey, yeah, I'm so excited. We got Adams back, our fabulous <laughs> raconteur. And uh, my brain is filled with useless medical facts. And Adams... <laughs> Adams is the is the yin to my yang because he has got all the automotive facts that I'm like, what the where'd that come from? So I think it's I'm so excited that Adams is back. Well, they're you they're useless facts as well. They're just in a different category of useless. Useless facts are great. Uh, we're we're excited to have you back, Adams. We're really excited for the conversation. And if you've been listening to the news and you're thrilled that we'll be talking about cars and not FTX. Ah, no kidding. I'm looking forward to the Netflix on that one. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't. I, I never bought crypto in my life. I don't know what it is. Now I'm so grateful. Yeah, no, yeah. Exactly. I, after three years of reading about crypto, I still can't actually define it. So I was way out of consideration for investment. Yeah, yeah. you got you have a guy who goes by the initials SBF, and people can't figure out if he's another Elizabeth Holmes or another Bernie Madoff or both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's hilarious. Anyway, or $16 billion earlier last week, and then he tries to sell his company for $1, and apparently whoever he offered it to thought that was a little pricey. Okay. Oh, <laughs> That's when you know you're doing bad. Yeah, I can and just Then he imagine. got on an airplane and took off from Venezuela, right? Argentina and Argentina. Uh, knows, yeah. No one knows if that's a rumor or not. You know, They tracked an airplane. There was an airplane from the Bahamas to Argentina. No one knows if he's on it. Uh, it's such a big mystery, and just five like crypto is a complete mystery. Yeah, in five years you'll have a lot of retirees with a very small retirement nest egg because of him, and you'll have some rich attorneys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The hey, story gets told too much. Yeah, go go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 sad. I'm like I said, I'm I'm glad that I'm an unsophisticated investor and therefore had no crypto. I feel proud about that. So. Hey, um. I'm going to start off with an interesting car. I know you guys uh, are well aware of this car, but I bet you haven't seen one in forever. Uh, a 1986 Toyota MR2, Mr. Two. Yeah, exactly. I I remember those. That was the um, that was the first gen one, correct? The one that looked like a little like a supercharged doorstop. It was yes, yes it was the 1984 to 1989. It would easily be crushed by Stefan's F150. Uh, you may not even feel it, Stefan. And I looked at it. I'm like, how do people fit in there? Where does their luggage go? It's a little tiny two-seater. And it's funny that the only thing I remember about it, tell me if you guys remember this, that was the cover car for the very first automobile magazine. Interesting. I did not remember that. I remember when automobile magazine launched and David E. Davis, what a celebrity. You know, he actually made the the Today Show talking about automobile magazine, but I did not remember that was the cover car. Yeah, I subscribed to Automobile for the first year, one of the inaugural. Um, I throw away all that, that whole first year issues crazily, but um, 
I've no recollection of that. What I do remember is not the Mr. Two, but the, the Pontiac Fiero that came out. I should call it the, the Pontiac Caught Fario. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember the Mr. Two, but then Pontiac came out when one of my medical school buddies actually bought one with the big whale tail on the back. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, man. 90 horsepower and, you know, this mid-engine thing that, and I actually look it up, only 0.7% of production cars caught fire that were Fieros, but that was 20 a month were catching fire at the time. 20 Fieros a month catching fire. So this is a guy I saw on a local news station. This would have been upstate New York when I was in medical school. And he had a Fiero that caught fire and GM would not reimburse him for the engine because the engine was just out of warranty. So he brought the reporter over and they did a segment on the news and he'd put a little barbecue in the back where the engine was. And he was barbecuing a hot dog while he's giving his interview. And I thought that's the best Fiero joke ever, except he was just trying to get their attention. <laughs> and what an unfortunate choice of names to call it Fiero. And yeah. have sort of the, the, the flaming Pontiac chicken logo on it. You know, I will say, though, to all the, the four people who love and respect the, the Fiero out there, by 1988, that car got good. Is that yeah, when they put the was, V6 in it? They put, yeah. They put a V6 yeah. in it? Okay. The, the, the GTV6 of uh, uh, 1988 had completely revised suspension, VBS um, wheels, and I'm trying to remember who, some, some fairly famous company revised the uh, suspension. It had a, uh, a Getrag five-speed. It was a decent, now the interior was tacky as all heck. Yeah, mean, right? it, Did you ever own one of those Adams? Uh, yeah, you could you could oh. tell I was walking right in that door. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. You're building it up. You weren't admitting you own one. I had to justify it first. You could tell I was sort of building some steam. Yes, you, uh, <laughs> you threw crushed ice on my party, but yeah. <laughs> I think it was. I think it was a Lotus, and I drove one. It would have been. The, it would have been the eighty. I think it was the last year it came out. And I That's drove it. And I agree. The transmission was good. I drove a, a five-speed manual. Good power, but very crappy interior. I remember rattles and, and lousy plastics. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, ter terrible seats uh, bolted right to the ground. And it had some sort of fake sort of blueprint-looking checks, if you remember, sort of hairline checks for the for the plastic on the dash. But it was an okay car. I won't put it in the great category. It probably would segue into the category that you've chosen for us today, Stephen. But I did not write it down. But the, the sound you hear in the background is my pen making that note. All right, cool. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, anyway, that was, that was the MR2. And uh, it's funny. Mr. We ended up, the Mr. 2. The Mr. 2. And I don't know how we ended up at Fiero, but we did. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Another one I saw, this looked fantastic. It looked fantastic. It was a 94 BMW 325i. It was E36 sedan. And you almost never see them. Very rare car. And it, you know, it, it's another one. You know, if you bring a car out during a recession, no one's buying cars. You don't see a lot of them. And uh, for whatever reason, you see tons of E46s, which is the classic one from around late 90s, early 2000s. You see very few of these E36s. And I just have not seen one. Uh, I think the the one from uh, the movie Pretty in Pink. 
So Blaine owns one in Pretty in Pink. That's the, the classic mid-80s BMW 3 Series. And then the E36 came out. People totally forget about it because it was very different. It just didn't grab people. And then the, the E46 came out, like I said, late 90s, early 2000s. And that was a classic one. But the E36, it looked fantastic. I didn't like it that much at the time. I thought it was great. I was very excited. How about that? Those cars were in, I bet you there are... 15 movies we could name that they were in the background because they were in every sort of pretense of what was then sort of the yuppification of America and yep. they had an ascribed status to them and an, and an upward trajectory. If you were in driving a BMW, you were just on the way to, to making it. And that car embodied that beautifully. And it was remember a good car. Yeah, you, you guys know? remember in college, the rich kids that were a little bit different, they drove Saab turbos, but the the other rich kids drove the 320Is, um, the early 3 Series. And I really liked the early 3 Series. The first two generations, I, I totally agree, Stefan. The first two generations yeah. were very collegiate. Uh, again, that's why Blaine uh, drove it. But it's interesting. I think both the first and second generation 3 Series were very masculine. And the E36 was very feminine. It was very sorority girl, you know, hot, blonde sorority girl. You wonder if that was a conscious decision among the designers, or are they that in tune with sort of the the rhythm and the cadence of what what is acceptable and gets sort of the masculine nod versus what might have a slightly more effeminate lines? Not I mean effeminate like like it lost its way because it was still a heck of a sports sedan. I mean they I, I give BMW credit for having basically defined that entire category. Yeah, I I, I think I, I totally agree, Adams and. And I just wanted to interrupt you briefly because as soon as I said hot sorority girl, Stefan made a motion like he was going to say something inappropriate. I want to hear it. No, no. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, you know, they weren't, I'm trying to think what, what were they, those girls driving back in college and they basically didn't drive. They borrowed everybody else's cars that I remember. I'm just trying, but you're right. It, it tweaked some memories from the concert last night. Things. <laughs> no. Time to move forward. Time to move on. Well, it's well, interesting was... if you're if you're a, if you were a cute girl in the '80s, late '80s, early '90s, uh, you typically would drive a Civic, not so much a Corolla. Those were the nerdy uh, grad students. But uh, a Civic for a cute girl didn't have too much money. But if you had money and you were you're a cute girl, you drove a an E36 three series. And almost always the automatic. And if you remember how the automatics did in the BMWs in those days, the, the shift lever would actually go down with those. It had like brush hair fiber things that were in, in the gate oh, yeah. to keep things from falling in there, presumably. But uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't BMW's best idea, but that did just come to mind. I remember that. No, they, it, it looked really cool when it was new and it didn't age well. They kind of clumped the hair. Or the bristles yeah, uh, or whatever. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, the E36 brought back memories. Uh, we don't see it very often, not nearly as much as the E46. Uh, I was really happy to see that. It made me smile. I actually saw it twice in one day, different locations, same car. Hey, we kind of yeah. hinted at something in a previous episode that, uh, Stefan, I want you to touch on because you know somebody this affected. So Hyundai, which of course... For I'm thinking Stefan, 25 years has been famous for a long warranty. And they came out with a long warranty since the this is a little flashback name for you. 
I'm sure none of us, Adams, you never owned one of these, Hyundai Excel in the 80s, terrible car. And it had such a terrible reputation. Hyundai, the only way to repair their reputation was in the 90s with a very long warranty. I think it's a 10-year powertrain warranty. And they've had that ever since. And all of a sudden, there is this really cool car, the Elantra N. It follows the uh, Veloster N. And these are sporty cars on the order of the Civic R. And um, really, really cool cars. And there's stories of people with Elantra ends where they're blowing up and they're not being covered by the warranty. Seems wrong. Stefan, tell us about your friend. This, does, this seems not good. So my best friend, Jimbo, from college's son, Colin, has an end car. And he absolutely loved that car. And by the way, he's, I think Colin's 31 or 32. And he also is totally into like the bullet Mustang <laughs> and knows more about my car than I do. But his buddy has the Elantra N. And so what happened with the Elantra N is there's a get to oil pump issue with their with their transmission and the shift. So what happens that the pump goes out, it causes the, the transmission to malfunction. And this happened to him and it overread the engine and basically destroyed the engine as well as the transmission. So he took it into Hyundai and it was a transmission issue, but they said, no, you overread the engine, but he's like, yeah, but you really, how do you over rev an engine like this? And he says the transmission, they said, nope. So he's stuck with a $13,000 bill for an engine replacement. And he's a young kid and he can't, he can't afford it. And he's kind of stuck. And it's kind of like the, you know, the other big Hyundai gaffe was in California with the exhaust on the end. Remember the story, the kid that got pulled over by the cops because his, yes. his, his end was making too much noise. He did have it, I think in track mode. He went to the testing place. They tested it in sport mode. They said, no, your car failed. You can't drive this car and you can't register in the state of California anymore. And that still is in limbo, hasn't been resolved. But I think these are two kind of public affairs gaffes, I would say, by Hyundai, that this is not good press. Actually, um, let's let's go ahead and say it. It's three. You had the Kia boys we talked about. So if you have a Hyundai or yes. Kia that you started with a, with a key, uh, it can be stolen, and there's a TikTok video telling you how to do it. So many of these cars have been stolen and joyrid, and uh, even some serious uh, injuries as these cars have been joyride righted and uh, and crashed. So that's three public relations gaffes. By the way, Stefan, the Elantra N. This is a new car. I think it came out last year. I mean, it, this just or it just came out. This is not a three or four or five year old car, right? So I think, you know, looking, you know, we've talked about, we praised Hyundai. My wife has one. They've been on a roll. You're right. They got the five-year warranty. This is something that, man, suck it up and move forward, but don't take this negative press when your company is absolutely peaking out with electric vehicles, the Genesis. I think this is just, this is a major gaffe and it maybe have to do with the Korean mentality on how you deal with issues like this. But this is not going well in America, over well in America and California. This is bad press. And Americans love to jump on bad press when it comes to big companies, conglomerates that are making a lot of money. Yeah, and Hyundai has sure been on a roll. I mean, they're they're them stylistically, they have really, really changed their silhouette and their look. And I have more than a few times been uh, caught unawares looking in the rearview mirror thinking, what is that coming up behind me? And it looks pretty good. And it'll be like a Hyundai, potentially a Kia going by but steph uh, educate me a little bit on these are dct these transmissions that are 
sharing the oil and then deciding that the, the, the motor needs to go past Redline? That's a DCT car? Right. They're DCT cars. And something about the high, they, they've got this high pressure oil pump in there that's been prone to malfunction. So it can go in the trouble code and it's supposed to shut down and preserve the transmission. The clutch automatically disengages. And apparently this kid, so when this clutch disengaged, the engine over revved. There and you go. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, how do you, he didn't over rev this car, but yep. they're saying, no, you over revved it. Well, he's like, no, the engine, the, the direct, uh, the DCT transmission did this. So but he has to do with an oil pump in the system. You know, you wonder though, or is this the typical with quotes around the word typical uh, corporate stance that there's some sort of plausible deniability until there's a little bit of a steamroller effect and some momentum built around other people making that claim. And our friends at Porsche, who we laud as a company and an automobile, sort of threw their hands up and said, what do you mean IMS bearing? That's your fault until eventually it wasn't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even then, uh, Adams, that's a, first of all, let's just say uh, DCT stands for double clutch transmission, but Porsche with the IMS bearing, which is uh, affects the 996 generation. Of and that's the, intermediate shaft, right? Yes. 911. Correct. Yeah. yeah thanks. Yeah. And this would have been uh, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, The 996s. The 996.1. And what happened was people were starting to to lose their engines. And you had uh, stories about people losing their engine just past the warranty, uh, you know, a thousand miles over or something like that. And Porsche wouldn't wouldn't replace those engines. That's not okay. Yeah, they ended up paying for a few, though. They're, you know, they're coughed up for uh I, I guess they just admitted it I, I really don't know what the wording of the lawsuit was but but they did begin covering them even though they will take it to their death that it was fewer than 10 percent were affected but you know of course the internet bandwagon and that the the ensuing fire of negativity and steph you're right man as a corporate entity would hyundai do better just to say oops mea culpa and buy that young man an engine and move on well, you're in, you know, you've got an extensive career in marketing, Adams. And yeah, I mean, what if you, you know, with your marketing career, what would you tell the higher ups at, at Hyundai? I would have, and I would assume they're doing this. I would certainly assume that the first two or three or five or 10 or however many showed up because that, that kids is not an isolated case. Re engineer and completely dismantle and microscope and boroscope and stress check every single piece in that car and if it looked like it was at fault come out and just say guess what we're at fault everybody remembers the tylenol case back in the 80s when uh there was a few there was just a handful of tamperings with 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 tylenol and they did the absolute best of turning a horribly negative pr avalanche that would have turned against them and was starting to turn against them. And they turned it positive by just saying our mistake, we're going to recall everything. And they did. And, you know, emerged, you know, on the victorious side, I'm sure that was costly for them. But I think in the end result, if you re save your reputation, how much was it worth? That reminds me, Adams, that in medicine, we always have complications and surgery, <laughs> things don't go right. And you know, and I always took it that I looked in the mirror and said, it was my fault. And I sit down with the patient and I tell them exactly what happened and be honest with them and say, yep, you know, I made a mistake. It didn't go as we planned. And those patients were happy people because hmm. of frank honesty. And 
I think this this isn't a question. Honestly, this is just with them not willing to accept that they made a mistake. And I think that's that doesn't go well with people. You're right, man. It looks like just corporate arrogance, and people go, "Wow, there's yet another case," you know. And people love to 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 harp on that. There, um, you know, this wouldn't. Well, I don't know how much technology would help in this case, but there is a, a man from Connecticut named Nick Murray. You guys may be familiar with Nick Murray. He had a Porsche 911 991.1, and he had all kind of electric problems. And he just videotaped everything. He had a dash cam, and he had a camera in his car. And when all the these trouble codes and everything would would go in his car, and the car would stop working, and then the the codes wouldn't be there when he took it to the dealer. He had a flatbed it to the dealer a couple of times. He had all of this video. And what happened was Porsche basically said, yep, this is your problem. It's not ours. We didn't. There's nothing wrong with the car. And he had so much video, he started putting it on YouTube, and he was getting millions of views. And all of a sudden, he put up a video, and he said, hey, I'm not going to put any more videos up. I, I'm pulling down all my videos. I've heard from Porsche, and the problem is resolved. I can't give any details. And that was the end of it. And it's because of the millions of views. So if you use technology and social media, maybe that's a way to get a solution. There you go. And sad it comes to that. But yeah, that, that was a good use for him. Yeah. All right, let's move on. The Jay Leno thing, Adams, you were alluding to is a is a quote I saw in a video that Jay Leno was doing. And it was like a throwaway line. And immediately I thought, that's really, there's a lot there. It's interesting. And he was talking about a car and he said, that's a great classic car, but it was a lousy new car when it came out. And I thought there is a lot of stuff like that. And there's a lot of cars that are not only classic, it's like all the variations. So there's a, there's cars that were good classic cars that were lousy new cars. There were cars, there were classic new cars that were good, but there were really lousy classic cars. And I'll start with that category because that's the easiest one. It's like most cars are pretty good new cars and lousy classic cars. You know, Honda Odyssey, an LS400, a Toyota Camry. Toyota Civic, uh, Chevy Malibu, Caprice Convertible, or Caprice uh, Station Wagon from the 70s, Buick hey, Station Wagon. Hey, but I take a Roadmaster, though. A Roadmaster would be cool, though. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's go with the first category. Be good. It was a good new car, but a lousy classic car. Can you think of any interesting examples? Stefan, I'll start with you. Yeah, I got, I got an oddball one here. The 1991 balloon plaster-designed Lexus SC400. So for listeners, this was a coupe that came out by Lexus in 1991. And apparently a designer got a bunch of balloons and just put plaster of Paris around it to make the shape <laughs> of this coupe. And, <laughs> and it's called the balloon plaster car. And I thought at the time, and I thought it was the coolest looking car ever. I said, this is going to be a classic one day. It, it, the, the, that design has just not held the test of time. And, it's a, I think that it, that's my good new car, lousy classic pick. That's a great one. It, it looks like just another 90s car. There's nothing distinctive about it. I yes. completely agree. I thought of that as the best design in the 90s. I thought of the, the early 2000s. I thought the best design was the uh, Audi TT, which I think was also a pretty good new car and a lousy, uh, lousy classic car. It's, although it's not a bad, it's not a bad classic car. But the SC400, SC300, yes, I agree. Adams. We're talking about good, new, and bad now. Yeah, is that correct? Okay, is that that the right category? Um, Which it's like most cars, actually. It, but Stefan, that's a good example, Stefan, because that's one that we we thought it was great new, uh, oh, and now yeah. it's lousy classic. 
Yep, agreed. I, I tell you, I, I've got one, and this is a bit of a dark horse because there's so many permutations of this car. Uh, is the 928 Porsche? You know that? Oh that, yeah, that's a good. Oh, one. that's great. That, yeah, that car won everything a car could win in the day. And I remember one of its most most laudable detailed features is it was so luxurious it had an air conditioned glove box. <laughs> And oh, it was it, it was an oddly sort of bloated looking style, but my gosh, it looked like it came from another planet. It did. And, and you know, uh, according to the mechanics who tried to work on them after they had uh, various electrical problems, among other things, they thought it was from another planet. Now, there are a few like the, the 928 GTSs, et cetera, that are pretty collectible. But man, for the most part, they're just a rather avoidable car. That's a, that's a great example. I had not thought of that. And I totally agree. That was like a, a poster car in the late seventies, early eighties. It was totally, totally cool. Had the Pasha seats, that very unusual fabric, which is, it's a, it's considered a classic. Now at the time it looked psychedelic and weird. Yeah. It looked like a, like a little bit of a, a an, an acid trip that became fabric. And it just, <laughs> but, they, but now that's cool to have that. Speaking of cars from another planet, what was the Aston Martin square thing that is complete nightmare? Lagonda. The Lagonda that came out that was like, it was like from another planet. And it, yeah. it was not good then. It is really bad now. Nothing works and you can't replace any parts. But that was another, when you mentioned the 928 design from another planet, that Lagonda just popped into my head. Yeah, I think the Lagonda was, was a car that was a bad car and it was a bad car now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> And when Aston Martin tries to set the new bar with uh, with space age technology, just look out. <laughs> the interiors of that car, it was all video game, and they just never quite pulled it off. Anything that's the grandson of Lucas Electronics is not going to work well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah, they're kind of old world, you know, wood, wool, leather, and that's what they're good at. The Brits are good at that. But they're not they're not known for technology, so they shouldn't they shouldn't have even tried. The Japanese, all right, you guys can give it a shot. Koreans, why not? But the Brits should have never tried. Agreed. All right, Agreed. Let, here's a more interesting topic. More interesting topic or more interesting angle on this is a car that's a good classic car and a lousy new car. I'll go first because okay. uh, it's probably my favorite car that's unattainable. The Hemi Cuda from the '60s, and it was absolutely a wonderful car, but it was too expensive, and people bought a 340 or 440, and the temperamental NASCAR engine that was the Hemi cost too much, and it was too difficult to maintain. So that's the kind of thing they sold very, very few. But some of the convertibles go for you know over a million dollars, and it's because they built like five, and it's because nobody bought them. Everyone bought the the more accessible and almost almost the same performance. 340 or 440. So that's my, that's my, there's a lot though. Cars that are classic now and they were lousy new cars. Oh, you've been a Dodge, Steve. I got, sorry, I'm, you've been a uh, Dodge guy. So I'm going to one up you the Plymouth Superbird. Okay. There you was go. A Dodge yes. Mopar yes. product that was absolutely lousy new. But my God, now those cars, I'll never forget, Adams, we were down at your old stomping ground, Lake Martin. And around the corner, this is probably 1970 seven or eight came a blue super bird and i was like oh my god what is that and i was like <laughs> i said i said i have never seen a bigger 
redneck car in my life than that thing. And it was a monstrosity, <laughs> but oh my God, today they're so cool. I love those I cars. Agree that those are terrific picks. Yeah. The, uh, the, I think the first Superbird I ever saw in my life, I would have been, you know, about, I don't know, 12 years old or something. And it just hit me right between the eyes. Cause I thought, I, I thought it was the greatest looking car I'd ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. But of course it's like a, like a block long, you know, you look at that car now, its proportions are just, just disastrous, but it is a fabulous collector car. Yeah. So you've only got one each, you folks? No, I've, no, I've got I'm I've waiting, got, for, I'm I've waiting got, for you, Adams. I've got another. It's your turn, Adams. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've one, got some more. Listen, as soon as, I heard, as soon as I wrote this down, I'm like, and as soon as I heard Jay Leno talk about this, I'm like, Adams Hudson is going to have some great possibilities here. That's why I only said one. I got more. Don't worry about I it. Got, I want to yeah. hear I want to hear what you got, Adams, because you're okay. This is right up your alley. I, I'm I'm going to do all I can to rattle off this list and try to distance myself from the Fiero <laughs> admission that, that occurred earlier. <laughs> okay, here here's one, and I guess some of what I'm calling bad new is maybe not that it was a terrible car, but it was like you you guys are talking about. I mean, they were they were sale proof, like a Honda S2000. I got to thinking about that. What a mm. fabulous card is now but i remember and i've got a very good friend who's been a honda dealer for basically forever and that car was was put shoulder to shoulder with the porsche boxster the the m4 convertible any and all the miatas that were doing everything right and a honda s2000 just looked like a, a boring little late me too attempt and now they're rather cool a cadillac ctsv wagon you talk about sale proof a supercharged V8 six-speed in the Cadillac showroom with the wagon on the back. Nobody wanted that thing. And now they're $50,000, $80,000 for a mint one. Do you want to just keep rattling or do you guys keep want to? Going, I want to, keep I want going. to I want to say something about the S2000 because the S2000 I tested and I absolutely really, really liked it. And um, But compared to the Miata, which is very accessible not only to buy but to drive, uh, the S2000 is very peaky and it's a little tricky. You know, the, the transmission, which is fantastic. If you're an experienced driver, it's not as easy to drive as a Miata. And then you have pretty good torque down low in the Miata and it's easy to shift. The S2000 is a little bit more challenging to shift. It's more satisfying, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to shift and you get really nothing until the VTEC kicks on at like 4,000 RPMs. So if you're not revving that car, it feels slow. Right. So, so it's just diametrically opposed to how we drive American cars where you've got so much slow and torque that Honda 2000, you had to keep that engine screaming yeah. to keep any power. Cause once you got, I don't know what RPM it was where the VTEC finally kicked in, but in the like lower 4, RPMs, that, that car had zero, zero torque or power down low. So, and it's not, we don't have a habit of driving our cars around, you know, with the engine screaming at high RPMs and, um, but you're right, it's a fabulous car, but I think that was its downfall was that the torque peak and horsepower were just way too high for how we all typically drive a car, except for on a track. I think you guys nailed it. Uh, Steve, I can tell you're an automotive reviewer that was spoken exactly like a reviewer would look at it. And that early car, you did have to wind it up to the moon. I had an AP2, what they call the second gen, which I think came out in 04. I could be wrong on that. but Roughly, um, roughly. It was supposed to be better, and it still was like you had to wind it like a motorcycle to get anything out of it. 
And let's see another that was maybe not so not so great new, but I like. Now this is uh, I'll try to win win back the Porsche Kingdom after the 928 comment. A 968 was was not considered a great car. So explain to our viewers what the 968 was, because I know what it was, but a lot of people won't know the uh, number. Uh, that would have come out in uh, in '92 and been all done by I think '95. And yeah, it, it was had essentially the evolution of the 944. The 944, right? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And it had the 928 headlights that sort of lay laid backwards from what you would ordinarily think. And it had at the time the world's largest uh, inline four cylinder uh, at about. Is that anything three- to be proud of? <laughs> The world's largest <laughs> inline four cylinder. <laughs> you know, because you know, like they had the iron something. They had the iron Duke in the Fiero, the four cylinder. So I mean, that was nothing to be proud of either. It was like but, a. Are you, it was like a are you drinking? Liter. Are you drinking straight lemon juice over there? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was nothing to be proud of. But here was one minor thing to be proud of: is they used the uh, the counter rotating balance shaft license from our friends at Mitsubishi. Mitsubishi. Oh, made, I did not know that. Yeah, it it made that inline four pretty good. I, I've liked the the couple of nine six eights I've had, but no, it's nothing to brag about. To say I've got the biggest four cylinder you ever saw, <laughs> but a pretty good car. All right, well I'm I'm gonna share this, but I've got several more, but I want some others to weigh in. All right, I I'm gonna go with one that is this is definitely a niche car. So there's a couple I'm thinking of, which I think we're all thinking of. I'm not gonna say it yet, but this is a niche car. That is so desirable now. The E36 BMW M3 lightweight and the BMW wow. M3 was kind of, it shouldn't have even happened. Uh, BMW in North America was dying for a BMW AG in Germany said, no, you can't have it. And then the club, BMW Car Club of America made such a squawk. BMW Germany said, all right, fine, you can have your stupid M3, but you're not going to have the real <laughs> damn engine. So they gave us kind of a, a little bit, just a, a slightly tuned uh, regular inline six. It was not an M engine like they had in Europe. And it sold very well. People absolutely loved it. It's still considered a very good car. Is it underpowered? Yeah, a little bit, but it's a great car. But the lightweight was much more legit. And they and they had trouble selling it. They had a lot of trouble selling it because it was so much more expensive. And now, thanks to Paul Walker, it's a very, very extremely, it's by far the most desirable e36 and it's it's more desirable really than any of the the e46 m3s in my opinion i think that's a great pick i i loved that car's punched out fender line i mm-hmm. thought that, that the that, one that had look at it tacked on fenders kind of squarish looking yeah no it did, yeah. had the they had the like the flag on the front fender on one one front fender had like a u.s okay. flag all right but it had the fender bulges, correct, Steve? Yep. Aren't we talking slight. about the same ten car? It's it's slight slight fender bulges. It would it really didn't. I'm not sure the body changed much from the regular E36 M3. They were all in white, as I recall, and they had a like a, a U.S. flag, uh, some kind of flag on the right fender in the front, and that's the only ah. way to differentiate it. Paul Walker had I think five or six or seven, and uh, once he, once he died, uh, very sadly died. Um, they sold for. Big numbers, you know, like 150 or something like that for all of them. Kind of niche kind of fringy, but um, extremely, extremely desirable now. You know, I think I'm thinking of an E30. Yeah, same here. I, I just pulled yeah, it up. Yeah. And it, I pulled it up. This has got the flag. Yep. 
I see. I told you it was niche. I told yes. you it was niche. So, well, yeah, you're a BMW a, guy. So, wasn't you're a niche, niche dude. You're All right. Well, how about this? The the <laughs> the. I'm not even going to say this is. This is neither, so I'll say it later. All right. And then, all right, BMW, one more. I, we all agree on this. I was looking for a car in 1988. I had my my GTI I was getting rid of. It was the Mark I Rabbit GTI that I loved, and I got rid of it. And uh, I looked at BMW, and the 325iS was very accessible. And the M3, which had a four-cylinder engine and you know maybe the same power, was way more. So I looked up the prices. It was around twenty five thousand for a three twenty five IS with an inline six cylinder engine and manual, so delicious. The E thirty M three was thirty five thousand, almost ten thousand dollars more, and it was like not even that much better. That's a lot more money. That was a ton more. That would be fun to sometimes enter into that. You know the present value of what that would be today, and I can't calculate it, but it would be a tremendous upcharge that ten grand would. Yeah. All right, talk about upcharge. There's another one, and then I'll move on to Stefan. Okay. All right, this is also fringy, but this is a classic car. And if you saw one, you not another BMW. I hope Toyota. Oh, <laughs> Toyota Celica All Track versus the ST. So this would have been 1990. I looked up the prices. The ST, Toyota Celica ST, which was a standard Toyota Celica car, which was a, a, an enthusiast car, front wheel drive, of course, but still an enthusiast car, $12,000, the same damn car with four wheel drive and more power, $21,000, almost twice as much. Wow. Now, nobody, so nobody bought the damn Alltracks. You saw them on the lots. I saw them in a couple of dealers. Nobody wanted them. And now people, especially the JDM dudes, they love them. So there's a fringy one, but that is a very desirable car now. Hey, Stoke, so we were at Dayton, both at Wright State University doing our uh, residencies. And I remember going down, you weren't with me, but I went down to the Toyota dealer because at the time I thought it was, you know, I had the, I had the bug-eyed Sprite. So I thought it was kind of like a car collector, you know, because I had <laughs> one extra car. And uh, I went to the Toyota dealer because I had read about that car and I think Auto Week probably because I was subscribed to Auto Week at the time. That was the only journal that I mean, it came out weekly and it wouldn't have been a road track, but I went down to look at the car and they had sold a lot. The guy wouldn't let me drive it. It was like worse than going to the Mercedes dealer. This is a special car. It's going to be a collector. And he, he wouldn't let me drive it. I'm like, and I walked out of but there. I was really It's scared. because you were in a bug-eyed Sprite. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> can't is- believe you wouldn't let you drive a Celica. Who cares? No, he wouldn't let me drive the Alltrack. No, I remember, like, he had, I remember oh, that car yeah. because it was, I thought it was a you know, pretty cool idea, um, but no, it wouldn't let me drive it. All right. That's ridiculous. All right, Adams, give us a couple more because I know you got some good Hey, it's my turn. Hey, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> Go I for just, it, man. All right. I so, just call him so, take another swig of lemon juice. He's ready. <laughs> lousy new classic now. Back to the future, baby. The oh, DeLorean. Man. Great pick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great pick. <laughs> Go I mean, for that, it. Car had so, that car had so much hype until the cork, I mean, Coke snorting DeLorean, John DeLorean <laughs> could get money for it, making his car in Ireland. And it had the horrible Renault engine. They get the big engine. It was so underpowered, but man, did it look cool in that polished stainless steel body. But what a disappointment when it finally rolled out. In. I, I hate to say it, and I'm going to say it. Uh, I'm putting, the, I, I would put that in the category of bad then, bad now. I don't think it's a good classic car. You know, 
I still don't think it's a good car at all, unlike a lot of the others that we just mentioned. But man, people are paying for them. It's like that yes. car just sort of got re, 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 rediscovered. And, you know, the Back to the Future movies did not hurt its reputation, but they still weren't worth a dime more than 12 grand for about 15 years straight. Yeah, and I right would there with the Brickland. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you talk about a car. I would actually enjoy catching a Brickland on fire. <laughs> I, I, would, <laughs> I would, I would delight if, if, if I, if I was made out of money, I'd buy a Brickland. I'd shoot it first and then catch it on fire. But the whole DeLorean concept was so, I'm going to just say, I think it was a strong concept right up until the moment somebody said, let's put a terrible engine as far back in this car as we can. Yeah. Yeah. That was a bad idea. That was, that was a Coke induced decision right there. If there ever was one. This is something that happens all the time in life. It's a great idea, poor execution. And it was absolutely uh, poorly done. It was also poorly made. It was poorly built. So they had all kinds of quality problems, but uh, they yep. just couldn't find the right engine, and they finally just settled on it because they got a decent price on it, and it was just absolutely awful, just very very poor execution. And you know, yep. it does it does look good. I like the, but it still puts every time I see one, it puts a big smile on my yep. face. I mean, yeah, I know it's a yep. lousy car, but I think it's just it's one of those. It's everybody that sees that car even today, it it puts a smile on your face. It's just cool yeah. looking. Good point. I like the, I like, we got some good ones here. Any other ones before we move on? Or you, like, there's got to be a few more. Adams, you got any more than the, the good classic car, lousy new car? Well, this is another one in the sale proof category. I believe the Acura Integra Type R. Mm, oh, yeah. You know, well, they, yeah. they would sit around and languish in showrooms <laughs> and, and, and nobody quite understood what it was trying to be. And then, you know, why is it this sort of like, I don't know, this diminutive little unassuming sport coupe with an R badge on it? And now look at them. I mean, those are crazy collectible. Big money. And I've got I've got one that's on the real niche side is the uh, the the little known Dutch maker Spiker. Mm. When that car first came out, me and a friend of mine walking around at Amelia Island saw a display, and it was way off. You know, it wasn't even like in the main display, and we had to sort of trek over to find it. And there's this Spiker sitting there, and we're staring at the logo and. We, I think one or maybe both of us had heard of it, but certainly never seen one. A striking-looking car, Audi V8 stuffed in the middle of it, uh, a little bit better motor choice than than, than a DeLorean made, and just full of scoops and weird aluminum things. And, you know, we just looked at it, and I don't remember what the sticker was at the time, but it was on up there. It was into six figures. And I think we both we just looked at it and kind of walked around it, and the sales guy, rep, didn't really know much about it. And... Um, all I could wonder is, you know, how do you say bankrupt in Dutch? <laughs> and it just didn't, you, you just figured they're, they're, they're going to sell like four of them, which they did. And now look what that car is worth. It's absolutely beautiful. And the, uh, I can't remember the CEO's name, but he, uh, tried to, he tried to save Saab after GM dumped it in the global recession in 0809. So, uh, this guy came in and, and did a pretty good job of trying to sa uh, save Saab, but he failed. Uh, so that he had two failed companies under his name, and then I haven't heard from him since. Wow, Victor hey, Mueller. That's it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, it was Victor something. So uh, let's move on to a different wrinkle on this, which is both cars that are both. And I'll start with one because I had one, Volkswagen GTI, and 
I, I'm not sure the the later versions are classic, but the the Mark One Rabbit GTI is absolutely classic now, and and some of those are going for big numbers, even into the. I saw one that went for about a hundred thousand dollars, which was crazy low miles. Goodness, um, that car uh, was good new when I, I bought one in 1984, just before the it was the last year. Uh, they only had them for two years here in the states. Uh, started in 1976 in Europe. It was only 83 and 84 here. I loved that car. I cannot tell you how much I loved that car. And zero to 60 was probably nine seconds, maybe eight something. It was perfect. It shifted great. It was, it, it sounded great. I loved looking at it. I loved the wheels, uh, the trim. It was absolutely so much fun to own and to drive. And now it's getting its due. It's an absolute classic. So that's my good and good. I like that pick a lot. I can see it in my mind's eye right now. A good friend of mine bought a, um, a black on black one. And, and you are right. It had the look, it had the stance, it had the wheels. It just had a little bit of a, you know, I'm playful, but I'm also feisty sort of look to it and sound to it. That, that just, that was, a, that was a market definer, that little car. Define. I was a Miata and I'm going to say the series one and series two Miata. They were yep. great cars when they came out. The old cars are, I mean, they're worth, 10 to 14 you know depending even up to 20 depending on which car which of the miatas you have the series one and two are not only that just desired collectibles and classics but people race them all the time so now you've got the people racing competing with the people that want to own this return to nostalgic car that you can go out and drive around drop the top that weighs hardly anything so i think that's Prop one still today, Mazda has held true to the core being of what that car is, and I give them great credit for that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say the Mazda Miata. And you're talking about the first gen car, there's stuff yeah, as, as the classics, the Gen One and Gen Two. Yep. Okay. Are, are the classics. Gen three is not so I mean they, they will be one day, but now the Gen One and Gen Twos are or the prices are going up on them. I realize this might deviate slightly from the topic, but what is the pick of the litter of that Mazda? Because there's so many different collector versions and different, I, I just don't know them enough to know, but like, what would you say? That's be the one I'd go after if I were you. So, you know, I think for me driving these cars and I own a Gen 2, what they call a hard S or some people call it an R code. And what that means is the car has zero options on it, and but it's got all the driving options. The upgraded shocks, the cross member supports and struts. The only thing it has on it is air conditioning. It has a it has a tiny little radio, but roll up windows. So the car was lighter than all the others. There's no sprayed insulation anywhere on in the vehicle. And it's the one you can basically take out the interior and go racing the SECA. So I think wow. those are the ones that and we talked about earlier, what makes a car enjoyable, especially a convertible, is the more raw the experience is, the more enjoyable it is. So I don't need head I don't need headrest speakers, which a lot of them had. I don't want leather seats. I just want this car to be about shifting, driving, feeling, and I would go for a hard ass or an R code um, Gen One or Gen Two car, and I think that's where you're going to get what that rawness, pleasure is, and and operating the vehicle and driving it and really enjoying it. That is a that is a great choice, Stefan. We're going to move on to Adams because it was such a great choice that next week we're going to spend a lot of time on the miata so we'll oh. we'll move on yeah so uh adams uh, go yes sir let's let's see uh good new good now um i've got a little bit of a soft spot for the dodge viper i just think it was such a oh such a yeah bold, good call 
just such a bold move. And, you know, Carol Shelby had a couple of missteps, as we've sort of alluded to at the Omni, and then with whatever in the world that Series 1 Aurora engine thing was that he, he sort of created. But the Viper, man, I just think they hit it. The PR was dead on. Uh, 1992, you know, the rest of the world was asleep at the wheels, so to speak, on designs and doing anything that resembled boldness. And, man, that Viper was just a breath of fresh air. Maybe not the best use of space in the world, but just a killer, wonderful, fun car. And Steph, hey, Adam, let me let me jump in here. So I told this story before, but you're the father of a daughter. So Steve and I were walking, and he lived in Bernie, Texas, and we're out for a walk. And there pulls up a red Viper convertible, the, uh, the Series One, the very first one, with and the goofy drive wheels, the three yes, spoke weird and then the top that would blow off if you hit like yeah. eighty miles an hour. But right. out gets a sixteen year old kid. Oh, and he's oh. picking up his date. Oh. As a father, would you ever, ever no. let your daughter get into a car, a Viper, with a sixteen-year-old male driver? I was stunned. That is, that yeah that that is, that brings chills up the spines of of fathers across America. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. terrible. That was a bad idea for somebody. Yes. There's a lot of uh, sports cars that have you know kind of what Stefan calls the nannies, but these electronic stability control and abs and all that kind of stuff and the the viper the first gen as i recall had none of that and was very you know that the very torquey v10 that car I, don't, I can't think of an easier car to crash than that <laughs> yeah, you talk about yeah, talk about raw i mean you yeah. want a raw experience it's kind of like the the first iteration gt just absolutely raw experience with no nannies and you can get sideways so fast in that car that's right. very true. Yep. I was going to say, if you don't get sideways in it the first time you drive it, you will burn your leg on the exhaust pipe <laughs> as a bonus. Yeah. I've been to a, a number of uh, journalism events at Laguna Seca where you get to drive all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, road cars. And anytime there's a Viper, it spins five times. There's five different guys. <laughs> it's always guys. Five different guys who, who, you know, the big turn two at Laguna Seca. That spin it there and they come in, you know, white as a ghost. They're like, holy crap. And this is, you know, no other car does that. It's scary and it's dangerous. Do I have a, have a moment for another yep. good, good. Oh, now? Yeah. Yep. And th this is like diametrically opposed to, to, to the Viper in, in, in most every single way. And I think it's fresh in my mind because I just saw one uh, this past weekend is the, uh, the Nissan 300 ZX beginning 1990, what they call the Z32. I think it's a, an excellent looking car. I think it was a forward thinking car, the twin turbo version, kind of the one to have a whole lot of technology crammed under too small a space, which of course caused some, some heat related wiring issues and uh, turbo bearing issues. However, I think that car, a 95, 96 last gen version of that is just would be a car to have. And it yeah. won everything when it came out. Yeah. You don't see many of them anymore. You really uh, there was don't. Another, anything around that year, and this applies to the NSX too, uh, you had this performance car golden era starting in 85, 86, 87. And the Germans were ascendant and the Japanese were starting to come into their own. The Japanese economy was so strong. And then there was this worldwide recession right around 1991. And that depressed everything. I mean, like, you know, as, as we recall, they couldn't give away a McLaren F1. Uh, there was a Jaguar supercar at the same time. They couldn't, you know, they had 
they had to sue their the people that bought it because or order it because they said we're not going to take it because the economy is so bad. It was a terrible recession, and and sports cars and performance cars and hypercars were profoundly affected, and uh, that's why they didn't sell. It wasn't that they weren't any good, and that that 300ZX was a good example. It's a great car, but people just didn't buy it because they they bought a Corolla instead because they didn't have any money. Yep, good points on all that. I'm just going to say very quickly before we move on to the last category. Uh, this is the one that. You know, we're all thinking it. The 9-11. The 9-11's never been bad. It's it's never had a bad generation since it started. It came out in 1963 as a 64 uh, model car. Every generation has been eight. It's a good new car, and then it's still desirable. Every generation is desirable now as a classic car. So that is a it's a great example of something that's both. God, that is a strong example. It's funny. I didn't even pick that one, but that is... You know, maybe they had a couple of dips in some years, but you're right. They've always been quite, quite good. Still yeah, now, there's no, there's no, there's the only one that is, is kind of as a classic is languishing is the 996. And that's starting to get some love and the prices are starting to go up. Even that's now being considered a classic. Yep. Yeah. That'll, yep. Ne- that'll never get any love from me with that fried egg, fried egg <laughs> headlights. I just, I just can't, everything else about the car. So I just can't get over those headlights. Yeah, uh, maybe that's the one generation, but they they nailed yeah. everything else. So, uh, and then the last one, neither, uh, and I'll just say Corvair, and then I'll let you guys talk, and then we got to move on. Corvair, huh? I know they're a good new Ralph Nader. The we, Ralph we Nader. Had a, a collective moment of silence when you said the word Corvair. We just <laughs> I'm, <didn't> <laughs> I'm gonna leave yeah. it at that. <laughs> you know, I we we don't we don't have time to go into it, but. That was a bit of a, a, a groundbreaker. I mean, I, I, I give yes. I give Chevrolet and or GM boldness points for that one, even though it was poorly executed. Okay, bad new, bad now. Yeah. The 2003 reintroduction of the retro Thunderbird. Oh, oh, God. yes. Oh, man. What a great call. Oh, my God. Yes. Yeah, I, I can't even... I can't even, the thought of that car just nauseates me. So Adams, uh, Adams have you ever driven one or uh, hopefully, hopefully you didn't own one. <laughs> <laughs> Had it parked next to a Fiero. Um, <laughs> no, I rented one. My wife and I, the very first time I ever went to the, uh, the Pebble Beach, Beach auction. So that would have been in that year. I thought well, we're going out to the West coast and I'm going to be fancy and I'm going to rent a, a convertible. And it was, that was what was available. And it kind of, was sort of cool because it was retro and it was sort of a fresh look. And I rented that car and I I knew Ford got it wrong when I popped the trunk and my wife and I, just two people, we could neither get both our suitcases in the back. And after driving that car for about two hours, I thought, you know, I'd probably be just better off walking, but that was it. That was my one and only experience. And it was a little embarrassing. I I drove one when it was new and I loved the design and I said mm-hmm. they nailed it. It looks like like what the Thunderbird would look like. And oh by the way, they had some crappy bloated Thunderbirds in the 70s, the late 60s, birds. early 70s that were just terrible. And then there was one in the late <laughs> 70s that was smaller but ugly and they finally got it right with a, a more aerodynamic one in the in the early 83 84 and that was pretty decent. Uh, so I was really rooting for a Thunderbird that looked like the original because the original was so beautiful. And I drove mm-hmm. it. And as soon as I started driving, I'm like, cowl shake. 
and noises. You could just tell it was yeah. so obvious that they they took a car that was never designed to be a convertible and they made it into a convertible. There was not enough stiffness. Obviously, they tried to make it stiff. It shuddered and the suspension yes. shook. It was yep. terrible to drive. I had forgotten about the cow shake. They did not get that right. That was a car you could just you could just feel it a half a minute after you went over the last bump. It was still adjusting itself. That's pretty good. I was going to say Edsel, but that's before our time, <laughs> so we could move on. And, uh, I, I got I got one. Can I throw in yeah. a dishonorable mention here? Yes, the Chevy SSR. Oh, oh yes. Oh my I God. I That's wanted that thing to be better and it just, just wasn't. And it just looks so freaking odd. And it just, it, 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 it tried to break too many categories at once. I, it, you know, for people who don't know what it was, uh, there were two ignominious Chevys that ended in R there was the HHR. And then there was the SSR. The SSR was actually kind of cool. It was a, like a retro pickup truck that the roof came off of and it looked pretty cool, but just like the Thunderbird was around the same era. It mm -hmm. drove as bad as a Thunderbird did. It just didn't, it didn't have the, the it did, it needed the personality, the SS 454. If you remember that from the nineties mm -hmm. uh, or mm -hmm. the, the original Chevy lightning, it needed that personality and it didn't have it. It was just boutique. -y. I never liked that thing. And what about the Plymouth Prowler? Oh, I like good. that. I kind of <laughs> like the Prowler. <laughs> I remember that. I thing. do. I, you know, I like the the Prowler. They put the wrong, once again, wrong engine. You know, they put yes. a six cylinder in that thing and had they somehow squeezed. You said today they would have dropped the Hemi, but listeners, a Hemi, the, this Prowler is supposed to look like kind of like a 32 Ford coupe, um, chopped, railed, and with the big tires in the back. And they're just cartoonish. It was a, I mean, a ballsy move. But, ballsy move. Yeah. But not, not just as, as always just. The bean counters probably got to it and it just wasn't executed the way that it needed to be done. And the biggest execution mistake was that six cylinder, the tires were like 36 inches wide in the rear to hook up, <laughs> but there's no power to hook up to them. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. And, it, and of course it had the bumpers that looked like completely an afterthought. The bumpers were terrible. Thankfully, most owners removed them. But yeah, the, I, yeah, the front bumpers you could hang your dry cleaning off of them. <laughs> they were just rods sticking out from the front of the car. I always thought that that was a car designed by a dad because it looked cool. <laughs> so you want to show your kid, but most importantly, the predominant color was Barney purple. <laughs> You're right. Yep. And there's always one at a car show, and the guy thinks it is the best car ever made. And you know, hats off to him. You know, I think we're all car nuts enough to admit that when you go to a car show, it may not be your taste, but whoever brought it loves it. And hats off to the guy with the Barney Purple Prowler that, that loves it. But now nah, that that's another car. You kind of wonder, how did that car get to the product planning meeting? I agree. It was, people were asleep at the wheel. Uh, I think what happened was uh, when it finally got approved, the person that approved it said, wait a second, I said V8. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you if you're gonna expose all of your rear tires and can't do a burnout, that's just wrong. It's absolutely wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. Well, uh we're, we're gonna move on. It's it's to find us some safety innovations that we're gonna close with. And you were gonna look at what safety innovations and when they came out or or who brought them or what was it, Stefan? It was it was yeah, something so good. It started off with we all thought that you know the the luxury automotive 
the luxury cars were the ones that came out with the safety innovations first and then trickled down to the rest of the cars. So kind of, there's going to be a lot of dates and a lot of names, a lot of history here, but we're going to, I'm going to run through this and hopefully it won't be too much of a lecture. But I think since we're talking about safety, we've got to talk about Hale Bliss. Hale Bliss was the first person ever killed by a motorized carriage in New York City. In 1899, he was the first recorded traffic death. And since then, we've been recording traffic deaths ever since. You know, interesting, the original glass in all these vehicles would just shatter on impact. And Ford and the Model T had safety glass in 1908. That was a huge safety innovation. Or stop sign. About that, Stephon. Yeah. Thank, you. Yep. Thank you for mentioning that because yep. uh, we take it for granted now. But, right. uh, you know, the glass in our homes smashes easily. And I always wonder when it was. I assumed it was like in the 50s. And it no, wasn't. Was Ford Model T, 1908. Man, and, that was innovative. And then uh, and speaking in terms of safety, we had to think about the first stop sign was 1914 in Detroit. And then the first three-color stoplight was in 1918. So th those were huge safety advantages that had to do with automobiles, I mean, with uh, cars now. And then um, something that we don't use in Alabama, turn signals, those actually came <laughs> out. <laughs> no, they do use them. They just leave them on forever. <laughs> Ever. So those were 1939. And then the very first, this is interesting. So seatbelts actually came out in 1950 with the Nash Rambler. They installed them actually in 40,000 cars. The buyers didn't want them. 39,000 of them came out and only about 1,000 cars had seatbelts by the end of it. But they all left the factory with them. People didn't want them. 1955, Ford thought seatbelts were a good idea and it has an option. Not popular. Only 2% of vehicles that left Ford actually had seatbelts in 1955. And then, you know, the big person that we all talk about in automotive safety is Niels Bolin. And Niels Bolin actually designed, he's the Volvo engineer who designed the modern three-point seat belt. There were three-point belts before that, but not of the three-point type that we have today, which was done by Niels Bolin in 1959. And they figure that the, they estimate that that single invention alone has saved over a million lives. And Steve and I mentioned on an earlier podcast that he didn't hold that patent. He wanted everybody to use the three-point seatbelt. So it was not wow. exclusive. So what what a gift he gave the world. That's giving with your heart and not how it affects your wallet. Go yeah. him. And that was a mentality of the Swedes and Volvo. I just, I mean, just, you know, hats off to the Swedes. And actually, I've got a YouTube video with an engineer from Volvo. And we did the anniversary of the seatbelt that you can, you just type up anniversary of the seatbelt and the Volvo. And my video will pop up with that I did with them. 1966, the Jensen FF. Do you know that car, Adams? Yes, sir. Uh, that's the Ferguson four-wheel drive, the first uh, <laughs> use of that. Dude, you're the, I mean, I didn't even know. That is so cool. That you, I, mean, I didn't know about is, that. I know what the FF why, is. I didn't know what it stood for. I knew your yeah. brain was full of useless car facts. And there, ladies and gentlemen, is an absolute example of Adams' knowledge. It is the Ferguson formula. And the, the Ferguson was the engineer who designed that all will drive mechanical, the all will drive system in that Jensen car. God, I'm impressed, Adam. I really am. Well, that's that was the last one. Was that the Jensen in Interceptor? No, it was the, the FF is based off the Interceptor. I think yeah, it, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Interceptor body. Yep. Okay. Yep. And it was four inches longer to accommodate the four wheel system and all that. But it also had a mechanical anti lock brakes, which did not work very well. So the, that car is a rare known car that had two large inventions. And um, All-wheel drive is a huge safety feature, which then Audi really brought to the forefront. Yeah. 
The next big one was 1967. Mercedes-Benz had the telescoping steering wheel column with impact absorbers. This basically meant that you didn't get lanced through the chest if you're involved in a front collision. Um, that was from Mercedes. And then uh, 1969, one of my favorite cars, the Ford Continental Mark III. I don't, God, I'd love to have a convertible Mark III with suicide doors. But Ford Good had luck. the... Sh and, and black, it'd have to be black. And I would almost yeah. have to go with... I'd have a tough call between a white or red leather interior on a, a Continental. God, I love that car. Handsome design. America hit that one just right. What they was its did. safety feature? What what did it have? Uh, the Ford SureTrack anti-skid option. Mm. Um, so they had this anti-skid option, the SureTrack that was a big, that was really, you know, imagine a car as big as a whale, B-52s, you know, going <laughs> around the corner, that'd be, be a good thing to have. <laughs> And so that was the precursor of ABS. Is that yes, what we're going? yes, one of the precursors. And okay. um, and then 1973, the Oldsmobile Tornado had the first passenger airbag. So it went to a luxury car. Tornado is a very cool car, front wheel drive. And then 1975, GM did offer driver airbags in the Buicks, Cadillacs, and Oldsmobile. So they're higher end vehicles. 1978, once again, Mercedes-Benz, which is going to be a recurring theme. The S-Class had the anti-lock brake system, which was by Bosch. And then 1981, the next big really thing to add on to seatbelts was Mercedes on the S-Class had the pretensioner. So mm -hmm. when you're in a collision, what happens is through electronics, the seatbelt fires and it tightens you up against the seatbelt. So that helps you decelerate in a crash and What's interesting about the pretensioners, a lot of small cars that don't pass the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration standards for cars, they would only add those if they couldn't pass it and they add it, they pass the test because they didn't want to spend the money in a lot of small cars. So the pretensioner is huge. Anti-skid control came out in 1983 at the Toyota Crown. And then later in 1987, Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Toyota brought it out. Once again, the S-Class in 85, they made anti-lock brake standard in the S-Class. It was no longer an option. And then standard airbags as well in Mercedes-Benz in 1985. Now, here's one for you, Adam. Since you're, <laughs> what was the first vehicle that came out with standard driver and passenger airbags? It was not, a, there was, it was a standard. I know this one. Okay. I, I, I'm going to take a. Your a, favorite manufacturer. Porsche 944 Turbo 1986-ish. Oh, you got it. Oh, man, 944 Turbo. Yes, the 944 <laughs> Turbo. Awesome. Golly. I'm going to have to dig harder and harder because your no, brain please is... Don't. No, I'm going to dig harder <laughs> next time. I'm disappointed in myself. I thought I'd get you. I, I can't believe you got the Jensen FF. That was fabulous. And then... The largest car maker to put standard analog brakes across was Cadillac. They did that in 1991. And what's interesting is it was not until 1990 that we actually had the first head-on crash between two airbag-equipped cars. Now, see if you can. This is a really one. Goodness. Chrysler LeBarons. It was two Chrysler LeBarons struck head-on with airbag, and that was a highly investigated crash to see. Wait, you mean just just by chance on the road? By, or yes, on by chance. So it was the first documented crash of a head-on with both vehicles having airbags. And both were Chrysler LeBarons? Yes. They were both Chrysler LeBarons. How about that? I, was I think guess... they did it on purpose. <laughs> uh, that's funny. I was going to guess uh, Chrysler just because Chrysler, above all manufacturers, first of all, Mercedes is, is niche. They didn't sell a lot of cars uh, back then. 
but Chrysler had ads on TV uh, and they had people that survived airbag crashes holding up their airbags saying, this saved my life. And Lee Iacocca really pushed that. So there were disproportionately more airbags in Chrysler's back in, in the late 80s. Right. Interesting. And then, and then 1994, the Volvo 850 was the first to come out with side impact airbags. And then uh, the, the last big innovation we'll stop here was 1995 with the Mercedes-Benz X600 Coupe was an electronic stability control system which then evolved into what they called pre-safe, which was a whole collaboration where the car is looking at the road to crash and doing everything it can to mitigate the crash, including uh, protecting the passengers. So yeah, interesting safety, uh, but Mercedes-Benz, you know, we think of Volvo being the leader because of the seatbelt and that was kind of their mantra, but really Mercedes-Benz has been at the top from design, the crush I, I left out that they they were the first company to have a, standard where they developed the cars to actually crush and head on collisions and mitigate the energy transmitted to the passengers. But you mean sort of do the, the accordion thing as best the accordion, they can. That, that's Mercedes-Benz did that as well. Yeah. Um, so Mercedes-Benz really has been at the leader of technology when it comes to both electronics as well as design of the vehicles. All right. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you, Stefan. I learned a lot. And, uh, shatterproof glass in 1908 that's that's shocking it's amazing so. yeah that was i was same here i was i had absolutely that was of all the things i think you're right that was the one that just that uh was most impressive to me and uh adams you guessed i can't believe you guessed that right <laughs> you got two <laughs> that was right really impressive i i, I, I kind of can't either <laughs> and, and and as as a sidebar to the to the jensen is that not the coolest car name ever the jensen interceptor <laughs> yes it is. It's that's, it's very Mad it, Max. Yeah, it just goes together. That's that's pretty neat. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it, it sold like three cars, but uh, in the yeah, US, yeah, but, <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> and two of them caught on fire. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. All right, we're we're over time, but that was really great. I really enjoyed everything we talked about today. So thank you guys, and uh, Stefan, do your usual thing and close us out. Hey, thanks everybody for listening. Tell your friends, tell your parents, tell everybody, look, listen, and like, and subscribe, and all that, and tune in next week. <laughs>